Up, brother? Gotta go peak performance, and we're gonna max out. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) The Caliendo Cast with Frank Caliendo, John Holmberg, Scott Long, and the rest of the Caliendo crew. It's the most important podcast in the history of Western civilization. How you doing, brother? Great. Uh, the guys on the show are John Holmberg. Uh, oh, just so you know, fellow white, white-capped fella. That's um, then, I uh, Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> My hair's in the hat. <laughs> Scott Long, uh, who's not keeping his dome contained. Okay. No, hi, Ed. Hey, brother. How are you? <laughs> so uh, the guys uh, on... I, I, I just like being honest, Ed. When I first met you, and Ed Milet, uh, entrepreneur, it's so funny to try and find a title for you because people label you in a lot of different ways. It's that entrepreneur, um, motivational speaker. Do you like that? I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, you started out as a, uh, in finance, Wait, is it really John and Black and Scott Long? Like, is that legitimately the names of these guys? For real. Oh, I forgot. I still have Black Mamba on my name. I know. <laughs> but it says John, Holm, John Holmberg and Scott Long. What are the real names? Yeah, no, we wouldn't lie about that. No, my real name is Drake Midnight. John Holmberg <laughs> is my radio name. <laughs> it sound like, like a, I feel like I'm in a porno or something. Like, <laughs> this is a theme. For, it's a theme? Like, this, this, that's the theme of this show? Oh, Dennis, no idea. Dennis Miller thought the same thing, Ed. Yeah, it says a lot about you, Ed, that your first thought after seeing John Holmes and Scott Long is, I know those names. Who the hell wouldn't think that? Jesus. Great. <laughs> Let's say uh, you're not the only one that maxes out. <laughs> that's so good. So, yeah, Frank, I like inspirational speaker. I'm kind of a coach. You know, I've helped people hopefully, you know, perform at their peak. And I've been doing that for, you know, a long time with different athletes and business people and entertainers and stuff. And I did. I started out in the business world in the financial services business. And, you know, I got really lucky and blessed. And then that went into a whole bunch of other different types. So of why things. do you, first of all, why do you get out of that? Or you're still involved? Yes. I didn't get out of it, but I sort of uh, reduced my role in it for a long time. I sort of got reengaged again. One of the things about this pandemic is like everything I'm involved with, I've had to get like, way more involved again, you know, because Mm -hmm. some of these businesses require anybody listening to this, no matter what you do, like you're more focused than ever on the stuff you're doing because you got to, you got to innovate. And and so all these businesses I'm more involved with right now than I have been previously. But like anything, I did it for a long time. You and I have talked about that. Like you, you're super successful what you've done, but you always want a different challenge. You want to do something else. And so over time after that worked pretty well, I started kind of getting interested in doing other things. And and now I'm kind of back doing that along with, you know, my other businesses. But the way you reached out to me initially, because I didn't really, I didn't know who you were. And your introduction to me was pretty cool too. He goes, you don't know who I am, but I have some pretty cool things and I'd like to introduce you to my audience. Correct. And and that brought me in. I mean, is that like a, do you always do that with people? Is that? (laughs) No, you and I have, no brother. I mean, in my audience loved you. It's still like top four most downloaded shows out of like 200 I, our audiences are totally different. Like the people who 
know you probably they're listening to this right now going they don't know me you know unless they follow you know you've done some stuff with tony robbins that's the same audience to some extent but our audiences were different yet i think there's tons of similarities between what makes you successful that makes an entrepreneur successful that makes an athlete successful right tell, tell that story of tony robbins saw you is that is that how it came about yeah, we've been friends now for a really long time. But when I was really, really young, he used to do these things like were phobias at his seminars, like literally phobias, like what you're most afraid of. He'd bring you up on stage. So did you did you go to his seminars? Was that how you got into the yep. life coach? Okay, so that's yeah. That, okay. Yeah, I didn't go there. I didn't go there with the intention I was ever going to do this. I went there because I had no self esteem, no self confidence, and I wanted to win. I had been an athlete. That didn't work out. I played Division One college baseball. I played a little while after that. And then like most people, like my original vision and dream or whatever I was going to do in my life didn't happen. That could be like a relationship you thought was going to work or a business or whatever. Just it didn't happen. I was really down. I see this dude on TV. It's way more money than I've got. I get my credit card. I get my dad's credit card. I combine them. I pay for this event. I go there and I'm like, I'm broke, like broke. So you know, he says, hey, what are you most afraid of? People up there, spiders, whatever. Mine was public speaking. And he brings up like 20 people and says, give a speech about something you love. And everyone gave their talk. And it got to me. I was like 15th. I said, I'm going to tell you about the Boston Red Sox. And it was something I loved. And I go 15 minutes on the Red Sox with all this passion. The event's over. One of his people taps me on the shoulder and goes, he wants to meet you. I go backstage. He goes, I just want to tell you this. I've never said this before at any of my events. I think you have a gift. I think you're gifted at this thing you're most afraid of. That's probably why you're so afraid of it. You should pursue doing more of this. And I'm like, that's like, you know, Jesus telling you in the speaking world that you're good at something. And then it ended up years later, all of a sudden I'm speaking at a event with him. He speaks at mine. I speak at his. And here we are now. And we're neighbors now in a couple of different places. We become good <laughs> How great is that? We're neighbors in a couple different places. But I, when I first met you and John – John and I, I haven't talked so much with Scott about this, but I was very skeptical of you because really? I didn't No, no, not in terms of you as a person or a human being. I just didn't understand the motivational speaker. I always thought that it really was. I thought they were scam artists is what I really thought people were because I'd never been in a room with somebody who actually inspired me the way you did. And when I left your house, by the way, your house is inspired, the one, one of your houses. But the, you know, when I left, I was like, everything about this guy is what I – it's going to sound kind of pathetic in some ways. I guess I go, this is the image I have of myself succeeding. Is well, I was like, oh, my God, this guy's so organized. Everything's pristine. Everything's in order. There's a snack basket, and the snacks are, are placed perfectly around in a circle. And I go, and I, I – it just was interesting to me because I've been around some CEOs and I've been around people in business and they're the types of people that make lists and they cross things off their list. And if you've read uh, the Steve Jobs book, you see how he would, he, he would demand so much from people, but demand things from himself. Um, but the attention to detail is what I've lacked a lot in my life. And I saw that in your house. And since then it's worn off. It's almost like, you know, you get away from stuff. And you, you forget how important it was when you saw it. Hey, Frank, your house looks like a snack basket. 
<laughs> Frank's, actually, Frank's actually neighbors with himself in two spots. Yeah. I was going to say, people don't know that about this boy. This boy owns multiple houses himself, right? He's kind of ah shucks in it right here, but you're exactly right. People don't know that about old Frank. Frank's pretty damn successful. But I don't believe, you know, Frank, I'm not a big believer in motivational speaking. I mean, like, I can eat a tub of ice cream, and I just keep telling myself I'm skinny, and I'm not going to be a fat ass. I don't believe in that. Like, I think one of the things you probably got from me is, like, I try to teach like techniques and strategies that have helped me because I needed them. Like you find somebody who's really into personal development or inspiration. They probably came to it out of necessity. Like I came to it out of like, I had an unusual low self-esteem, right? Like I had to learn these tools. And then when they started working, I became kind of like a beast of it. And I'm like, I want to understand the brain. What makes, what's this? Like the, my show's about maxing. What makes, a successful stand-up comedian. What's the same thing that Marshall Falk has in football, that J-Lo has in entertainment? I'm fascinated by that stuff. That makes a small business owner successful. That makes a really good mom. That makes a really good school teacher. That Bill Belichick has. Like, what are the commonalities? The differences are obvious, right? What are the commonalities? And then I try to teach those things. And then for me, I'm 50. I turned 49 yesterday. Like the first half of my life's been really favored and blessed. I'm taking the second half, and I like I want to help people. I don't know. It sounds cheesy, but like be happier, be more successful, and like that's exactly what you do. You just do it differently. They come see you. They laugh their ass off, right? They listen to this show. They get entertained. Maybe they learn something too. They're happier. They're better. Like that's what I want to do. I'm not as funny as you. I'm not Dennis Miller. You know, like, but I got what I got. And so my contribution to the world is helping people hopefully live better. And I'm, you know, been pretty, pretty good at that. So Ed, let me ask you this real quick. Sorry, Frank, let me ask oh, you this. Go ahead. What, when you say, because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's more fascinating to me to find out what the necessity was. Why were you so, what, what was your self-esteem uh, level? Why was it so low? I, that's a great question because I've looked back on that. Like a lot of people listen, it's like, what is my deal? Probably a lot of that stuff, are, uh, I call them viruses of the mind. I think they're installed in you when you're defenseless when you're a kid most of the time. Just stuff people say that maybe even love you. For me, my old man who's my best friend, I just put this on Instagram yesterday. My dad's my best friend. He's been sober 34 years. Yesterday was his sobriety birthday, which happened to be my birthday. But my dad was an alcoholic. So my dad was in and out of the house, you know, you, I didn't know which dad was coming home when he did. Was it kind of like friendly, engaged, let's play catch dad or like pissed off kind of hammered dad, right? And so I think all those things as a kid, living around stress and anxiety, dysfunction, caused me to like go to school. I was already small too. Just that combination of events, outwardly, I just became a really introverted, shy, insecure dude, even when I was a good athlete. Ironically, that insecurity helped me in sports because – I thought I was so shitty and I was small. I had to outwork everybody just to be baseline. So some of these things don't always hurt you. Like my insecurities and fears caused me to go to the gym an hour early and stay an hour late, right? Those were, those were good things. But in terms of like living, they're not so good. So I had to learn how to leverage the bad stuff to my advantage and then build some skills so that I don't have to live in misery all the time. There's a lot of people Go ahead. But were you aware that you weren't, you had no self-esteem or did that come later? Say again? Were you aware you had no self-esteem at the time or did that come later? Super aware, man. Yeah. Everyone that has low self-esteem knows it. It may show up in your ego. It shows up when you're driving in the car and you look in the rear view. You're like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why am I not happier? Why, when I walk into a room, do I worry so desperately with what everybody thinks about me? 
right? Like there's all these places that it shows up and for all of us differently. And by the way, here's a secret. I still have it. Yeah. I, I still have it. I still, I still want it. Like it's what causes me to want to grow. It's what causes me to get better. It's like, I'll be, I've had hundreds of people on my show. I've liked the majority of them. The coolest <laughs> thing Frank says to me is, is that, Hey man, like you were who I thought you would be or better. Like that's what Frank was like. Frank's a, this sounds cheesy because he's hilarious. He's a, you guys know this. He's a really good dude. Yeah. Like I root for him. I want him to do well. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He's a good person. He like checks in on me. How you doing, bro? You know, like that's, that's like, I want him to win. Yeah. Like how's the jet Ed, you know, that's <laughs> how close is the jet Ed? <laughs> how close is the jet to Phoenix? And then his answer, which one? Yeah. Oh, stop it. No, no, but I, there is, there was something, listen, I told John, I said, you're, you're authentic and John's still skeptical. And it's not, it's not a, I don't think that's a bad thing to, to be because yeah. I, I still question. I still, I go, I don't get it a hundred percent of the time, but even when I met you, I walked in and I go, I don't think I need to get it. I don't, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not at this point. I want to backtrack a second. When you go and meet Tony Robbins, are you already good in the financial planning world? No, You're nothing no. there. So you, okay. well, I'm, I'm a, no, I'm a new beginner, dude. You know, just trying to get it going. And it wasn't. Just, I, I love Tony. It wasn't just Tony. Like I dove into studying successful dude. Like sounds silly, man. I I when I went to see you perform, like if I were a stand up, I'm attention to detail like crazy. Like you said, like if I were a new stand up, I'd watch. How do you walk out? You know, how do you stand? Do you move around? When you deliver your punchline, do you stop moving for emphasis? Do you do this stuff consciously or unconsciously? You know, like, so I'd watch other speakers. I'd watch, it's like, uh, there's a faith healer on TV I used to watch all the time called Benny Hinn. I don't know if you remember Benny Hinn, but he was this healer dude. He'd go around the world, and Indian dude, Christian dude. He's this powerful speaker, man. I'd, I'd watch him, and what did he do the same or different than Tony Robbins? Ironically, years later, I have this house for sale. True story, dude. I swear to God. I'm kind of obsessed with this Benny Hinn dude through the TV, right? Little dude wears shoulder pads. If you, haven't, if you don't know him, go Google him. I'm kind of obsessed with this dude. I'm on a business trip in Atlanta. Swear to God. I swear to you. I'm in Atlanta. My wife calls me. She goes, I just got to knock at the front door. Benny Hinn is at our front door. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? She goes, Benny Hinn to the front door. I had a house that was for sale. And it was off the market now. And he knocks on the front door and he goes, hello, sister. He's got this big security guard with him. He goes, my wife's dad was a pastor, so she can, she's a praying girl. And he goes, the, the Lord's told me I'm to live in your house. And my <laughs> wife's like, what? I pray, I pray every night. He hasn't said anything to me, right? And he, and he gets on the phone with me. And he's like, I know you were offering. I'll just tell you what it was. The house was a couple million bucks at the time. And he's like, I'll give you $3 million. But you got to be out in three weeks. I'm like, we will be the fuck out of there. <laughs> and, and three weeks later, we moved out. He moved in. And, and I bless his heart. He never lived in the house. He ended up getting divorced and never saw the house. But, but it was one of those weird things where, like, you've all had that where, and it sounds corny, but, like, you're obsessed about something. You're kind of vibrating about it, and then you draw it. It could be like someone you haven't, you've been thinking of, you haven't talked to in six months. You're just thinking of, all of a sudden the phone rings. You're like, dude, crazy. I was just thinking about you, right? Like that's that. If you mean, I believe in motivational thinking like that. Yeah. I believe thoughts are magnets. There's power to them. You will draw to you what you, I always say your obsessions become your possessions. So if you obsess about something enough, you probably end up possessing it good or bad. 
Like my dad, you take my dad, my dad had money, but you take someone living on the street, they've got no resources, no money, no nothing. But if they were a drug or alcohol addict, somehow every day, they find a way to possess that alcohol or drug, don't they? With no resources, no strategy, no game plan, they're obsessed with it, they go get it. Well, what if you could focus that type of obsession onto the things you really want, right? Like there's a part of your brain, I won't go into now probably, but there's a part of your brain that helps you deliver those things. Like there's medical scientific proof that what you're obsessed with you eventually possess, including Benny Hinn in your life. (laughs) I had a guy come to my door once and said I couldn't live in the house anymore because my wife was fucking him. (laughs) You ended up living in my house too. It wasn't Benny Hinn though. No, that would have been such a great answer. That would have been better. I had somebody somebody mistake me for Benny Hill once. (laughs) I can see that. I can see that. I, I have a question I, I, because I look like your partner, Benny Hill's little bald old man. Oh yeah, <laughs> which makes Scott the hot chick. I am. I'm the hot chick. I'm, I'm always wanted to be. <laughs> Let me ask you this real quick, Ed, as it's on my mind. Uh, the Benny Hinn thing fascinates me because I like to. I like to watch a lot of religious speakers. Being in radio for as long as I have, I'm fascinated by people who can captivate an audience, especially with something I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed by it. Um, but there's a fine line after watching as much as I've watched of taking advantage of that skill. And I feel like that is a dangerous slope that, and I don't want to lump you into motivational speaking, sure. but that's a very dangerous ego game you can play when you own an audience like that. And you're like, you have a lot of people that aren't very uh, self-confident. Mm-hmm. How do you walk that line? It's a great question. It's one of my biggest, uh, bro, great question. It's one of my biggest, uh, let's just call them what we think, like snake oil salesman, right? And it's one of my biggest issues of being in that entrepreneur, inspirational space. Quite frankly, like in my space, there's very few legit dudes, meaning they're really selling you stuff they've never done themselves. It's not stuff they've actually proven to be true. So where I try to, where I'd like to think I'm separated is I've produced real results in my life. So I'm not selling you strategies I haven't used. Plus, I think Frank will tell you like 99.9% of my stuff is free. So I've given, I give away hundreds and hundreds of hours of free content because I didn't, I didn't get into the space to make money doing it. It's not that I haven't made money in it. I have, but as a percentage of my income, it's low. And I do worry about that. And there's a ton of it and it breaks my heart, especially like during this time, you know, people listen to this and maybe a different time when they hear it, but like during the pandemic, like to be charging people for coaching and stuff business wise right now to me is, no bueno. You know, it's just, there's, it's wrong. So you're right. People do have that control. And unfortunately, you watch that in politics. It's going to happen over the next eight months. Both these big groups, no matter what you believe, are going to constantly try to manipulate emotions. And it'll, it'll never, Bill Clinton, who it doesn't matter if you're a fan or not, but Clinton said one time, politics shouldn't be about who's good and bad. It's about who's right and wrong. Yet almost nothing in this next election will have anything to do with who's right or wrong. It's who's good, who's bad, and it's a manipulation of people. Just like you said, I hate it. Yeah. Well, it's a da- I just find it to be dangerous because it, it, you can see it in radio and stuff when you run into the crowd and they, you know, it's that uh, confirmation bias. They hang on your every word and you don't realize it. Frank has it with an audience. Comedians love that. Scott, when you guys go on stage and you own an audience, you own them. And afterwards, they're a bit hypnotized. And, and it's, it's, it's sometimes it's worrisome that people can be that way. You almost want to have a motivational speaker tell them not to go to motivational speaking. Mm. Yeah, if you watch some of my stuff, I, I actually say that sort of politely. What I tell people is you should really vet the person. 
You know, yeah. what's their real intentions? What's their background? What's the proof of what they're telling you? And then I always want to follow guys who don't couch themselves as experts. So like for me, if someone's listening to this, I'm not an expert. What I am is a 49-year-old guy with a lot of experience. So most of the stuff I'm going to tell you is things not to do that I've made mistakes on. Like, like I've made hundreds and hundreds of mistakes. It's more what you should – it's almost like in an NFL game, it comes down to really six plays, right? Normally, that's why the Patriots have been so good forever. They just minimize errors. Life's a lot that way. Life is a lot like an NFL football game. Like if you can minimize errors – self-inflicted wounds that we normally inflict because our self-esteem's so low. See, here's how it works, not to sound too detailed, but your self-worth is like a thermostat for your whole life. It sets the whole temperature of your existence. So, and you have different thermostats. If you're a 75 degree or of money, wealth, uh, happiness, whatever it might be, you'll find a way to get 75 degrees. It will regulate the temperature. It's not the external stuff. Like this room set at 75. It's, high, it's 104 here in La Quinta right now. But it's 75 inside. The external heat, this room cools down the thermostat to 75 degrees. I'm getting 75 degrees in here. And in your life, it happens over and over. You start, if you're a 75 degree of wealth, money, and things start rolling in your business life, and you're 80, 85, 90, you know what? Six months later, if we come back and looking at you, you're back to 75. You find a way to turn the air conditioners on. And same thing, you go broke, you'll heat them back up to 75 eventually. The key is, can you alter the setting to where you're an 80 degree or a 90 degree or a 100 degree? And for me, I want to listen to dudes at whatever it is. If I want to learn to be a stand-up, I'm going to listen to Caliendo because he's lived it at 150 degrees. Not some hack who's going, let me tell you how to tell jokes. If I'm going to follow a personal development person or an entrepreneur, I want to look, are they 150 degrees of entrepreneurship 150 degrees of light maybe i've got something to listen to with them so i can change my thermostat so i agree with you in terms of uh i mean so that analogy you just used have you used that analogy before the, the one thing i see with you that's amazing to me and I, we talked about it a little bit when i was on your podcast it's you have these sets of analogies that you've gone through in your life you have sayings Mm -hmm. Those are the, I mean, that, you know, if you're going to do this, you got to do this first. Those yeah. things, do those come to you? Where does that, where does that come into? And that's part of, I mean, that's part of, you know, teaching somebody something is having these memorable, um, you know, phrases and stuff like that. Do you actively look for those? Do they yeah. come into your, where do those come from? Yeah, I got like, it's like you, probably for you, you're constantly seeing the joke in something. You're seeing the funny. You're, you have this thing in your brain called the reticular activating system, right? And it screens out everything not important to you. So it like filters into your life. That's what's important. So if you buy a new car, you ever notice this? You buy a blue Honda. All of a sudden on the road you're driving, there's freaking blue Hondas everywhere. Three lanes over the wrong side of the road. Parking lot, blue Honda. Over there, blue Honda. They were always there. Why do you see them now? Because they're filtered into your importance. So for you, it's funny shit. Right, you see the funny and everything. You see the nuances in people's personalities, the way their lip moves. I don't notice any of that stuff, but you see that. I, my reticular activator sees like lessons and stories and analogies. So I'm constantly seeing things. Like I'll watch a commercial. There's a saying in there I like, right? And what I recall, what I really figured out is, this is true for people in sales too, like facts tell, stories sell. People don't remember facts. They remember stories. So if I go to your show, it's going to be one or two. It's your Madden. Boom. Right? Like 
it's a couple things that's a story or a saying that I remember. That's true in everything in life. You better have a story because they're going to forget the fact, right? One in three, this, they don't remember that, but they remember the story about the dentist. And so that's what I try to do is tell stories and give analogies. So do you go and research to even get the term reticular activator? <laughs> I mean, no, really, because it's you. It seems like you. So you get this stuff, you get this thought in your mind, then you go research it. The what the yeah. psychological? I try to prove it. Like I try to prove it. Like I, I, I have this theory. I go. I think I'm seeing this. Is there any scientific proof for it, or are there examples of somebody like that who I can point to to go? They do that thing I'm telling you to do, and you know who they are. That's why they're successful, right? And so, yeah, that's what I do. I try to find the scientific proof or the actual example or multiple examples of the person. So what's the, the particular activator is just the thing that's always on, isn't it? If I remember learning that right, it's the yeah. thing that's always present, always looking when you're not paying attention, it is. And right. sometimes that's when you're like, why do I know what just happened? it picked it up when you didn't know you were paying attention. Bingo. It's like, it's like uh, you're on an airplane and you can hear people three seats down, one seat behind you, your auditory picks it up. You're like, why can I not stop hearing these people? Right. That unusually loud, but they were on a topic about a divorce or the coronavirus or something and it entered your awareness. You're like, I can't fucking stop hearing these people. <laughs> right? That's your reticular activator. Or, I mean, for guys, you like blondes with whatever. Every room you've ever walked in in your life, you've noticed every freaking blonde with whatever because they're what you like. And so, Define whatever. Well, I'll, say, I'll email you a photo of my wife. You'll get it. So, so, and believe me, you would really get it. Frank and so, you might need two photos for his wife. Way. You would get it in a very big way, um, an extremely big way, um, which is what I like. So, when you walk in a room, you see those things, even if there's hundreds of people in there. Here's the problem. Most people don't take control of what it is they're looking for. So they see, if you're insecure, you walk in a room, you see all the people who you think don't think highly of you. Or if a comedian walks out on stage and they're not totally certain about that joke, Frank and I have talked about it, like when he's working through new material, right? If he's not totally certain about it. It may not be that the, the line isn't funny, it's that he's not delivering it with that same certainty and he's almost looking for the negative reaction or hopeful it's going to get a laugh. And it's not that the joke isn't good, it's that he's not confident enough yet in the joke to have it sell like it could if it was. And so that's the RAS. Yeah, which is just essentially believe in your material. Yes, and it's, your, it's what you said, it's your filter. You're always right. on, you can't, that's what, and it, what it does, it filters out stuff. Well, now we're going to go too weedsy, but like you don't feel the blood rushing through your left ear right now. You're not thinking about your breathing. It keeps you sane. There's a, there's a certain amount of thoughts you have. 92% of your thoughts in a given day are identical. 8% are variable. That's it. Now all I can think about, though, is the blood going through my left ear. There it is. I can't hear, I can't hear anybody voice. anymore. That's all I hear. I'm telling you. I've activated that. What's the, what's the moment, Ed, that you go, I want to go and I want to try and coach people and show them what I've done? Is there a moment in your life? You know, there's like you talk about moments happening and, uh, you know, th this, uh, I'm not sure if it's coincidence or what it is. Uh, well, you don't say you don't see it as coincidence. You think it's think of it as fate. But like your dad celebrating 34 years of sobriety on your birthday. Was yeah. that an act? Was it on your birthday that he decided I'm not going to? Uh, drink anymore? Evidently, yeah. You know, I was only 14 or 15, but yeah, evidently that was like, hey, you know, I'm losing my family. 
I'm not as close to my son as I want to be. I've got three. I mean, it must have been something occurred to him like this is the time to do it. Yeah. So is there never, a moment you in your life that you – I'm sorry. I was going to say you never discussed that with him? You don't know why he quit? Uh, it's been a really vague thing because, like most alcoholics, he had, to, he had tried to quit other times. So the more interesting thing to me was why did it work this time? You know, why did it work? And to, to your point, Frank, in my dad's case, he bought into AA. So whether you believe in AA or not, doesn't matter. My dad bought into it. And so sometimes it's not the perfect strategy. It's fully believing it. Sometimes it's not the perfect joke. It's fully believing in the joke, right? And my dad fully eventually believed. My dad's still, my dad's going through chemo. He's in his 70s. And prior to coronavirus, my dad still went to three or four meetings a week, 34 years in, because he's linked that strategy to him winning that battle. So it's a, it's a, that's why I'm so into like, what's your tactic? What's your strategy? So what was the moment for you that turns the corner for you and go, I want to get into this? Like, is it just that Tony Robbins thing? It can't, you didn't do it immediately, did the speaking, you? The speaking thing Frank picked up then and I started to do more of it. But no, what it was is it's really weird. Like as I did better, I'll be, okay, truthfully, as I did better financially, I started to live around more successful people. And as I would get to know them, whether they be a football player or a fighter or a business person, I was sort of known as this dude who knew a lot about this shit. And so as I'd pick their brain about how do you run your company or they'd say, it's almost like a law of reciprocity. They're like, hey, help me with this. How come when I step back, I'm in this deal where I constantly see the double coverage and not the open defender, right? Why is that? Why is it that, you know, that every time I make more money, I find a way to blow that money. Every time I gain, I lose 20 pounds and get ripped a year later, I put it back on again. I'm like, well, I can help you with that. And so as I started to help these really successful people, they're like, would you come talk to my company? And then when I got on stage, they're like, hey, that stage thing, you're even better at than the one-on-one. -on -one. I like you better on the stage. And it just sort of grew its own, you know, like a lot of things in life. It's like, I never thought this would be what I would be doing. So that was another thing John and I talked about, like the stage versus one-on-one. -on -one. Because to me, and I think John as well, the one-on-one -on -one makes a lot of sense. When I met with you one-on-one, -on -one, and I'm, I'm skeptical, I'm one of those people that if I'm in an audience, I watch and I go, I don't like being part of it. Like the, for me, the quarantine situation is actually the life I would like to live. I'm just not making any money right now. I just want to be in my houses and which I'm lucky enough to have that. Yes, I did uh, work for that, I believe, and, and a lot of stuff. But I, I would like, I've been in one room most of the time working on stuff the whole quarantine. But I like to be a hermit. I like to be to myself. I like to be around my family. And I don't like to be in a, I don't like to be in a crowd or an audience, but the one-on-one -on -one with you, I totally get like, holy crap. And when I met Tony Robbins, I was like amazed at the, and he wasn't, even, he was tired. He was tired and seemed like he didn't want to, he wasn't even, when he was out to the crowd, he was in some motivational mode, but even behind, he was just like <sighs> taking a breath. Like he needed, he needed to relax. He's a giant, giant man who looks like <laughs> he needs to shrink a little bit. So, <laughs> So I, you know, I, I get the one-on-one -on -one and the crowd, I don't know if I understand it because being in there, but I, even when I saw the Tony Robbins stuff, and this is stuff that John and I talked about a little bit before, because I said, and I, I don't think, I think you probably run into this all the time. People go skeptical of, uh, you know, the, a lot of stuff. People are skeptical of comedians. They're skeptical of everything. Mm -hmm. But 
the crowd, what do you see about that? When I saw that, when I was performing in front of that Tony Robbins crowd, I was amazed at what they became as like a, like they were almost a, a single unit as you're performing in front of them. It was weird. And I, I didn't feel cult-like. Um, some people I've heard say that kind of a thing. But it was it was crazy to me when they would break out into song when I would say freedom and, <laughs> and then, oh freedom you know it, and it wasn't the George Michael song it was a song they all knew more than the George Michael song yeah and I it was it was odd to me and it, it, a lot of the stuff John and I talked about before this because he was he said you know we're just talking about who you are and I said listen I I just when I was with Ed. I just, I, it, it flipped a switch in me. It just made me think and it changed me a little bit. But um, in terms of that cr crowd, when you're speaking to the crowd, you feel they get the same amount? Like if the companies want you to talk to them, there's no reason you're going to say, no, I don't want to. That's, right. That doesn't make sense because you can talk to more people at once. Do you feel like people get more out of one-on-one? -on -one yes, or you're right. So um, by the way, Tony and I are a little bit different on that. I'm not into that group think when I speak because I'm – I'm a, I'm a loner like you are. Most performers are pretty introverted people, right? You, John you know. loves to be out with people. I've been that since the late 80s. I've been in the same <laughs> Well, I, it's funny you say that. Like, I'm enjoying this. I haven't left this room much the whole quarantine. I'm kind of digging it, right? So, um, so my answer would be I don't like group think. I'm not a – I've never been one of the guys. In fact, when I played baseball at college, this is something embarrassing, but I was, I'm Eddie Milet, but my teammates started to call me Eddie myself. <laughs> because I enjoyed being alone so much. I'm not Where good. Where do you play baseball at? Where I play baseball like at Pacific, Big West Conference. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And a stolen right. base champion, right? I was. Not anymore. Someone's come along and crushed that. But, yeah. <laughs> I was a one-tool player. But, but I guess my point to you is that here's what I think when you're one-on-one. -on -one. Like, I like to meet people that they are relatively the same person on stage that I meet one-on-one. -on -one. Meaning – for me, I think when I'm on stage, it's a more amplified version of me. Let me tell you what I mean by that. That's why I liked you. I like you on stage. I reached out to you because I've enjoyed your work over the years. Then I met you, and I'm like, you know this. not corny. I, I told my wife several times, like, I just really like him. Like, if we lived near each other, we'd be really good friends. Like, we talk enough as it is, but if we were around, I'd, I'd want to hang around him. And here's why. Um, people respond to energy, man. How you make them feel, not what you say, right? So... One-on-one -on -one influence is like, how do I feel when I'm around this person? Do I feel they're sincere? They care about me? I feel good? Or they drain me? They're negative? They're bullshitters. On stage, for me, I'm, so I'm conscious on stage of it's going to be a much bigger amount of energy. So I always say a really good speaker responds to the energy from the room. That's a good speaker, right? A great speaker gives the room energy. A really great speaker gives energy to each person in the room. So if I'm in front of 1,000 people, that's cool. But if I'm in front of 50,000, I'm tired when I'm done because I'm consciously trying to pour energy into each of the 50 or 30,000 people to the back of the room. So my point is like influence in sales, uh, podcasting, speaking one-on-one -on -one or, or doing a set in comedy is energy transfer. And when you're done with a good set compared to a bad set, the energy's different. The energy they give you, the energy that you give back to them. And you can feel it. When you're in a good one, true. You know this. There's a flow. When you're in the, a good podcast, like there's been moments in this podcast when we were in flow, and there's been a couple when we weren't. And you can feel the energy. Seriously. You can feel it when you're in a good conversation. It's an energy thing. It's not anything they say. 
when you're in a good show, same thing, good speech, same thing. So I'm conscious, I guess, long way of saying it, how the energy is being transferred and omitting it to people. I, I'm, I'm conscious. Hey, Ed, uh, I'm going to jump in here. Um, okay, you guys are all very successful on different levels. And my success has been, okay, not bad, pretty happy with it. But it's not, it's the success level where now that there's a pandemic and my industry has been destroyed, I have stress. I'm not bringing in money. There is none of that. And most of our listeners are in that place. They're not sitting in Frank's two houses. They're not sitting in your five houses. And they're not sitting in you know, Holmberg's bar that's part of his house. And that's great. I'm not condemning you guys. I would like to be sitting where you're at too. But to me, you guys don't need the motivation. Sorry. I think you, I'd like to know what you're saying to people who, you know, did the rules right. Maybe they, they did their job well. They were high-end producers, but not that kind of high-end. And all of a sudden, Everything seems to be wiped out. What are you telling people either in your podcast or on your one-on-one on what people can do and use this time for? Great question. So one, you're hundred percent right. So many people are suffering right now and it is one of the odder times for me because I know there's a part of them going, Hey brother, this is one thing where I connect with you pretty regularly, but right now, you're not worried about like rent next month or actual food or the future of your family. And so what I would say is I take a playbook out of the times when I was like that. You know, I obviously everyone on here has been there prior. So the hard answer is there's no good answer, but here's some things that I would say to you. You, um, you, you don't have to believe everything you think. So all the thoughts going through your mind right now aren't all true. And one of the things that and people that have some sort of measure of control over their life is they question their own thoughts. Like, first off, is this thing I'm telling myself true, number one? Number two, even if it is true, does it serve me to believe it? I mean, that may sound hokey, but it's a fact. So how do you change what you're thinking about? First, you have to understand what thinking is. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a long answer here. What is thinking? Thinking is the process of asking and answering questions to yourself. You just do it very quickly. But that's what a thought is. You ask and you get an answer. So the way you change what you're thinking is you have to change the questions you're asking yourself right now. That's the difference. It's not easy. Not, why is this happening? Oh, shit. It's got to be, for one thing is, what is this trying to teach me? Like, I know I got to eat, but there's a lesson being taught here. All this pain and suffering I'm going through, I'm going to get something for my pain. What is this teaching me? Maybe it's, hey, man, next time around, when we get through this, you're going to have to save more money. Maybe it's you need to innovate and be online more often. Maybe it's the industry you're in needs to evolve or you need to make a pivot the next time. What is it trying to teach you? Number one, that's a big, 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 big deal that most people will miss. Two, what's good about this? I know it sounds hokey, but what is good about this? For me, what's good is it's a consciousness reset for like humanity, literally. Like all the things that were really important six weeks ago that social media and reality TV has got us all obsessed with, achievement, stuff, cars, jets, what people think about me, what I'm wearing, how many followers I have, how many likes I get. That don't matter when you can't eat, right? And so one reset is what's more important now? Freedom, health, family, friends, right? Having things to be grateful for. Second thing sounds hokey. I know it's going to sound cheesy, but you're doing it right now. When you feel helpless, 
If you would get helpful during that time, you can't simultaneously be helpful and be feeling helpless at the same time. They don't coexist. And so reach out. Sounds corny. I'm going to tell you something really corny for four dudes on a call. And everyone in your audience is going to roll their eyes if they're the wrong people. You were born to do something great with your life. No one's told you that in forever. You were born to do something great with your life. And most of the great things you will do will never be seen and you will never make money for doing. And one of those might be you text a brother of yours right now who you haven't fucking talked to in a year and go, hey, bro, just thinking of you, man. You okay? Just check in, right? You don't know what that might do right now. One of my best friend's sons drank himself to death the other night at 25 years old because he was so miserable. He has been suffering so much. His business did go down. His friends know he's going broke. And I did not text that kid who's very close to me and just say, hey, man, I love you. Believe in you. You okay? That would have been one of the greatest acts of my fucking life, and I didn't do it. And I would have been real helpful and not helpless during that time. The last thing is this. you got to train and prepare to come out of it, right? you got to be a better version, not corny. Here's the deal. The old you that was doing pretty well before this, that ain't going to cut it coming out. It's going to be more competitive. Whatever you do is going to be harder. You better be growing, reading, and move your body every day. Work out a little bit. Change your physical state. You can't be moving your body. Uh, Frank, you know why Tony's events are so crazy? Everyone's jumping up and down every two minutes. You could have said the dumbest shit in the history of the world. You were hilarious that day because everyone's body was in a peak state. In life, if you're not moving your body, you're sitting around watching Netflix all day right now. When they put us out into the world again, you're going to be behind, man. So you got to train. you got to prepare. you got to equip yourself. And just remember, we're going to get through it. You were born to do something special, and you better get something for your pain. What is this supposed to be teaching you? Constantly be questioning what you're thinking about. Don't believe it all. Most of what you're thinking is bullshit. Worrying does not take away tomorrow's problems. It takes away today's peace. And so most of what you're worrying about ain't going to happen, and worrying about it ain't going to change the fact that it's going to happen. So those would be bits and pieces of advice that I've been giving people pretty regularly lately. And what advice? Who, who gives you advice? <clears throat> um. I got a kind of little board of directors in different areas of my life. So um, it would be a name dropper type thing that makes me, some of them you wouldn't know, but like where I live right here, I'm fortunate that like, I, I hesitate. To, uh, well, it's just true. I'm looking right now at Phil Knight's house, like right there. It's right over the computer. So when I take my walk in the morning, sometimes Phil's out there walking, you know, what's a guy like that thinking at this stage? He's been through a lot more rodeos than I have. Right. My you dad, check when you're walking, like, oh, my gosh, I just saw Phil Knight. I'm wearing Adidas. Yeah. <laughs> I put him on a blast. No, there's guys like that. And then, honestly, like, my best counselor in my life, honestly, is my wise dad. My dad could give a crap if I have a jet or uh, a big wheel, right? Doesn't care about how big my house is, but he's, he's like the anti-me. Slow down. Enjoy yourself. Have a little bit of fun. Have some peace. Call your sister. You know, like, you, I have a wise counselor. For me, in my life, it's, does this person genuinely care about me? Like, that's the best advisors for me. Hopefully, that's what Frank's saying. Like, a little bit, he's like, I think this dude kind of has my back. Like, no ulterior motive. I don't get anything from Frank. He doesn't get anything from me. We're friends, right? I'm here to help him. So, I, I can tell you, I have a little group of guys, a couple like Phil that you would know, some business dudes. I got a couple of people in my faith life that I'm very close to that are 
You'll never know who they were, but they live better than me. They're better men than me. They make me want to be better by my proximity to them. And what I do with mentors, guys, is I'll say one thing. Proximity is power. So the closer and closer and closer you can get to somebody, the highest form of influence is friend. So like with your kids, their teachers, their mentors, they got influence over their life, right? But who do you really worry about with your kids who's going to shape their life? Their friends. So I try to turn people that I admire into friends of mine and get closer to them. And that's something I've been pretty decent at doing. So that's who I'd say advises me. You're, it's, it's just so, to me, it's always, and I talked about this with you on your podcast. It's just so funny how you can turn anything into a slogan too. Like, do you do that in the morning? Like brushing is shushing. You know, like there's always, you've always got a way to turn something into a rhyme and try and make it positive. Those are the things. I mean, that's, I guess, some of the salesmanship of it, but it's, people remember those things. It's, it's interesting. Can we, can we cut it out with me? Listen, Anyone who, you know this about me, almost all my shit's free. There's right. nothing to sell. No, I know. I know. It's, it's, it's just, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's just amazing to me that you always have something loaded. It, it's just your mind. It's more than I'm complimenting your mind that you have something ready to go with that. Not for the, not for the motivation itself, just in your own life. Yeah, but there's no, there's nothing special about me. Like you do that with an impression. Anybody I start to do, you can turn it into someone similar. Like, and someone out there who's a big, I'm making up, they're a big Ravens fan. Like, anything that comes up, something you're passionate about, you can pull the reference of, right? Like, my son's in this huge thing where LeBron is a better player than Jordan. And for me, I'm like, you've lost your damn mind. Like, I've watched them both play. Sorry, dude. I, it's not, and of course, it's generational. But he's watching Jordan's documentary right now. He's like, well, Dad, you know, LeBron didn't have to go through, he didn't have to wait for the Pistons to get old and this up. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about, right? But no matter what I do, my son could pull out 8 billion references, stats that are probably bullshit about why LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. So it's his reference point, right? Mine just happens to be growth and personal development. Yours is funny stuff. Other dudes listen to this. It's their thing, right? Now, what you and I have been pretty smart about is we've been able to monetize part of our passion. Right. And for some of the dudes listening to this, it's like, it's great that you're a big fan of these teams. It's great that you have that. But like, maybe you need to become that big of an expert at something you can monetize too. Right. That might be something to look into. Ed, simple way to win that argument, the LeBron Jordan argument, is the word hand check. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Theory. you. No one can make the argument. Hey, LeBron wouldn't survive the way Michael, I mean, or Le- Michael would kill in this day and age. Kill. And LeBron would struggle because big guys would knock him around. He had to play more physical. I think he'd still be good, but no way he's the best. Right. Well, there's no one in the center of the. Uh, uh, there's no one in the center anymore. So just drive no. the lane and do what you want. And here's the other thing. Maybe I'm now people are going to hate me. I like. Go, go get your son. We need to talk some sense into that boy. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you, ever, you guys watch the game, and again, I'm not a basketball expert. I cannot get away. So there's the hand checking on defense, but it's the other thing. It's what they allow these dudes to do with their offhand while they're dribbling to just shove people out of the way. It's just like just. Right. LeBron just bullies the guard out of the way. It's not like he's out quick the dude. It's not like anyone's afraid of his jump shot. He just bullies him out of the way with his offhand. Go watch him drive the lane. It's like, drives me nuts. Like, that's not an offensive foul. You're allowed to just take a dude and throw him with your offhand. They basically windshield wipe people now. It's not just a hook. It's a full windshield wiper, maybe two two swooshes. Yes. Uh, it, that that is amazing. To, to I have a Native American uh, friend who emailed me the greatest thing I've heard about the NBA in years, and we were talking about the Jordan LeBron comparison. And he emailed me and he said, 
the NBA is no different than the United States of America. It started to suck when the Europeans got here. Am I weird though? Like the rule changes in the NFL to me have made the sport better, right? Like I like made offense better. It made offense better. Okay, you're right. For me, like the viewing experience, like it's possible to come back in the NFL down twenty-eight to three in a Super Bowl, right? Like. That didn't, you couldn't do that 15 years ago with the way offense is played and all the running of the football. Like, I kind of like what the NFL's done. The NBA, when I watch it, I just, I just don't feel like it's as good a viewing experience as it was during those Bulls years or even the Bird Magic years. That, it might just be me, but I like big dudes in the middle, and I, I, like, you know, I like moving the basketball around and real defense, but that's just me. I sound like an that old man. Scott Long's first movie, Big Dudes in the Middle. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was very good at that. <laughs> now, Ed, you, you, you do you talk to you talk to sports teams too? That's yeah. or sport or individual athletes. What? Because we talk about sports a lot on this show. That used to be the the common theme, and we kind of move around with it. We had Mike Lombardi on, who you brought up, Belichick, who you know he 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 wrote a book, basically all the lessons he learned from. You know, you talk about learning from the smartest guys. He worked under Bill Walsh, Al Davis, and Bill Belichick. So what do you tell athletes? How do you work with them and motivating them? Because obviously they're motivated in regards to building their bodies or aggression. But what, what track do you take with them? Because they're a little different than the average person. They're very different. And to go all the way back to the beginning, you better not try to talk to an athlete about positive or motivational thinking. They, they – when you're, when you're over 20 in a slump, they don't want to hear your uh, pep talk, right? So one of the things that I work on with athletes often is teaching them something that I call like middle range thinking, which is assessment thinking. So learning to be cool under pressure, but be completely assessing of the situation. What athletes have a tendency to do is they magnify it to the negative way too much. Like you, you meet a professional athlete, no joke, 15 years in the big leagues, okay? I'm telling you. 15 years in the big leagues, they've got 300 lifetime home runs. I'm making up the number. They're in the middle of an over 20 slump. They think their career's ending. Athletes go the other way like you cannot believe. You take an NFL quarterback who's been to four Pro Bowls and he's thrown three picks in the first half, he thinks he's lost it in his mind. So with athletes, and this is what happens. By the way, it's a good answer to your corona question. Let's just be real, guys. It's been about six weeks, not six years. We're going to get through this, right? You're, it's not over. And so with athletes, it's getting, them to t- it's getting them to have what I would call neutral or medium thinking, assessment thinking of where they are, and then executing from there. Meaning stay calm, not getting rattled. Pull a, I mean, it sounds corny, but pull a Brady. Like literally pull a Brady. Just chill. Get, get, go back to executing, right, which is what he's good at doing. The other thing with athletes is for, for, not for a Brady. You don't have to do a lot with a Brady. But for your average 20th guy on the roster, it's getting them to play snaps like it's their last. Believe it or not, even pro athletes, any former athlete I get, they're like, I'd give anything for one more game. I'd give anything to go back. And somehow in the middle of these careers, when these guys get paid a little bit, they start thinking this is going to last forever. And they don't execute like they did when they were hungriest in college. They don't execute at practice like the best. And so it's getting everyone to act like Jerry Rice. 
It's trying to get everyone to act. And what you do is you, you use threats. You let them know this isn't promise. You could be replaced tomorrow. We keep going back to the Patriots. I don't know why because I don't think they're going to be very good this year. One of the brilliant parts of Belichick's culture, it's not the least bit motivational. It's you can be replaced at any moment. At any moment, you're expendable. And that keeps players on edge. With professional athletes, all you want them to do is execute at their optimum level. And that's to get them to think neutral and not negative and to almost have that this can be taken from you. Don't take it for granted. Um, that, you know, when, if I'm going to a, talk to a college football team on a Saturday, I'm like, hey, the rest of your life you're going to remember Auburn, Alabama, when you started a linebacker. You're gonna, most of you guys have one or two. The rest of your life you're going to be talking about this game one way or the other, that you dominated the man in front of you, you took advantage of his weakness, or for the rest of your life you're going to remember you got embarrassed in front of 50,000 people. This one game will last the rest of your life, right? So it's getting to understand the magnitude of the moment because the money, the distractions, the claims for tickets, the accolades sometimes perverts their version of reality. Like it's going to last forever and it's not that big of a deal. And so it's those two things typically with athletes. Isn't that just that's sort of preying on the idea that I think that that translates out of sports into everybody who's had a little success goes into the imposter complex just a little bit that we're all kind of waiting for that next guy to come in and say, you don't know what you're doing. And I think that's especially with entertainment. I know comedians and uh, radio especially, they prey on the idea that, hey, the first sign you see this slip is because you don't know what you're doing. And I, for some reason, that's built in everyone's brain, athlete or, or anything. The second you achieve the level of something, you're like, oh, my God, I'm actually pretty good at this. Correct. So there's this thing that I talk to the athletes about and anybody about. I ask them, is your will to win for sale? Most guys can be bought. There's a maximum effort, what I call a max out effort. And with enough success or enough money or enough starts, their will slowly starts to get bought. The best people and everything, their will to win is not for sale. Ironically, the higher they climb, the harder they work. That's what, like, we, people don't get this. In business, what separates a dude making $400,000 a year from a guy making $4 million? Is he better? Is he more talented? No. When he got to four hundred grand, he poured it on even harder Whereas most people get to 400 and go, whoo, I made it. I never thought I'd get this far. And their will to win is bought, right? That's the difference. What the difference is in uh, a Kobe Bryant and a Clyde Drexler, who were both great players, is at some point Kobe Bryant got this success and he went, I'm getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, not 4.30 in the morning. This great story that um, uh, safety for the Patriots – Chargers, now on NBC. Rodney Harrison tells about Brady, like this notorious story of he was always the first guy in the weight room. He gets there the first year, and there's this skinny kid, and they're working out. And, uh, he'd get there three hours before practice at 7 a.m. I'm butchering the story. But the bottom line is, it's this kid, Brady. And Harrison's like, I get here first. So the next day, Harrison comes in at 6.30, Brady's there. The next day, Harrison gets there at 6 o'clock, Brady's there. The next <laughs> week... Harrison comes in at 5.30, and as he's walking in, Brady tosses him his towel and says, I'm finished. Have a great <laughs> workout. This is four hours before a game film, and he went, at that time, I didn't know if this dude could play, but I knew he was a freak. And that's the separator, whereas a lot of guys get to that level, and they start believing their stuff. All the draft I'm watching when these guys get interviewed, and when they get in there, I'm wondering, is any of their will to win bot? What makes these first-round picks flame out from, from the guys that make it? Somehow their will to win changes. It's not all of a sudden they can't run a 4-3-40. It's not all of a sudden they can't tackle. There's this separation in their will at some level. 
I mean, I've had that. I went through that. I mean, I went through a part, and we talked about that on your podcast, where I was like, here's where I failed. Here's the things that uh, I let them take over me. I was fine. I was, uh, you know, content with life here. I was like, I didn't think I'd ever get here to this point. And then at a certain point, I said, I, no, I need to turn it on again and start getting, you know, the Rocky two or Rocky three in it. I need to, I need to care again. I need to fight, uh, uh, you know, Clubber Lang. I gotta, I gotta build myself back into this. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a difficult, you know, even this whole Corona thing, as we were getting into it, the timing of that in terms of business for me was an interesting thing because I was just starting to get into the internet and yep. working this, and I wished I'd done this years ago, but yep. this gave me the opportunity to find a bigger audience more quickly, whether it's on Twitter, Instagram, uh, podcast, everything's growing exponentially compared to where it was before. And that's kind of doing what you said, take these moments. I'm not making any money right now on any of it. There's no money being made on any of it, um, but I'm taking these moments to almost train and be a new version of me and create within that and take that to the next level for when we do get out of this hopefully this podcast can be making some money the you know people on it can make money from it and it becomes a, a generator that if this happens again that this type of uh, situation happens again which we don't know that okay now i'm prepared this time the one of the reasons i got away from the internet was michelle my wife she, i was doing vine at the beginning i was starting to take off on vine she's like you doing another vine and i stopped doing vine I stopped, here's a bug, but I stopped doing, uh, I, st <laughs> I stopped doing Vine and I should have built the internet then. I should have gone on Instagram then. That's, you know, seven, eight years ago, I would have built it. And instead of being 400,000 followers on Twitter and 80,000 on Instagram, I'd be over a million and have a couple hundred thousand to a million on Instagram. And I would have been prepared. I wasn't. Now, yeah. nobody saw this coming, but I went from making a ton of money to zero and having to pay people still. And it's like, this has sent me, John, you talked about it on the last podcast of somebody asked you uh, at a, at a bank, yeah. are you, are, are you worried about your job going away? And you have a contract for years with a radio station, but who knows the radio station, the group could fold. You don't, you don't know anymore. You don't. And you'd appreciate that because it was a weird moment of self-confidence because I'm not short on that. And when she asked <laughs> me, are you at all worried about your job going away due to COVID-19? I actually said, fuck no. And then in my head, it washed over me. I was like, you don't know that, man. The whole thing could disappear. And it, and it started to, for the first time, it, the doubt crept in that, you know, I know I'm okay. I know I'm doing my job well, but will my job be there? And that's a weird thing for me to have that little, that little snake got in my head for two seconds. Yeah, what you're doing, Frank, is you're making like success deposits now that hopefully there'll be a withdrawal on. Most people are unwilling to make deposits in the success account the bank account of life because there's no deposits there's no withdrawals right now but like none of us are guaranteed i watched the Pertita, the guy who's supposed to do my show a few weeks ago the guy who owns the uh, houston rockets very successful man owns uh, the golden nugget owns uh, thousands of restaurants and when i watched him get interviewed and said i had to go borrow 250 million bucks at 12 percent i know those are crazy numbers but when you see a dude like that going hey i'm really worried to take steps like that when you see people at that level that are worried they could melt down, then certainly any of us could have our own issues, right? This is, none of us are immune to it. But, you know, Frank, you and I talked about it when you did my show. You're like, I should have done this sooner. This is forcing, 
you know, that kind of innovation. And by the way, in a couple of my businesses too, we were going to get around to making these adjustments and we got caught. We got caught a little. Our will to win was bought just a little bit. We were doing pretty well, man. And there's nothing wrong in life if you go, hey, I'm making a certain amount of money or my life's pretty good. This is what I want. Great. There's nothing wrong with that. Just don't say you want more and act like you don't, right? There's nothing wrong with taking your life the way it is and saying, this is enough for me. That's wonderful. It makes you happy. Great. But you better be sure that you got enough of it so that it'll last a while. That's the thing people don't get is these times, this is probably not the last virus or the last terrorist attack or the last global crisis. What? Uh, wait till there's a biohack on all the financial institutions at some point. That's going to happen someday, right? So you got to be prepared for winter. In life, there's four seasons, right? It's just like there is. And winter comes in everybody's life. It's not going to be spring and summer forever. I just figured out who you are. You're the Colin Cowherd of life coaches. <laughs> <laughs> you have an analogy? <laughs> kind of John Snow. It's coming. Oh, winter is coming. Yes. Winter is coming. You know, I like Colin. You were trying to help me get Colin on my show. I yeah. Like oh, did he, that didn't happen yet. I think we. I think we had it. I think it was my fault. I want him on. I had Jim Rome on, who's become a really good friend of mine. I love Jim. Don't mention me to him. That's a bad idea. He won't <laughs> look at you in the eyes. <laughs> John and I could double up and double Rome you. We want to be better friends with you than Jim. There is a way you can get two Jim Romes out of this and only one from the real Jim Rome. This. <laughs> Ed, get it through Rome. your dome. Double Rome is better than the guy with the comb. <laughs> Go home without double Rome. There's, there's the slogan. Who, you mentioned the people who are on your, uh, your Jedi Council in life now. Yeah. Uh, uh, along the way, you know, Tony Robbins had something for you. Are there other people that wowed you along the way too? That uh, that you went, hey, this is a moment where I'm uh, I'm brought to the next level. I, I I talk about Holmberg being one of those people. John, who's right there. I talk about you. I talk about uh, quite a few people in my life that I just go. I'm motivated to try again. I'm motivated to to work here and do something different. Who's done that in steps along the way for you? Not necessarily now, but maybe in your, as you're coming along, uh, who gave you those moments? Please say Tom Vu. Tom Vu with the boat and the chicks. <laughs> Get the real estate. I, did, I did go to, uh, I did buy Carlton Sheets online real estate program because I couldn't afford Tom. <laughs> you remember Carlton Sheets and Robert Allen. I spent three grand to go to one of his seminars on how to buy real estate nothing down like a hundred years ago. Now we're dating the audience big time. Um, so I do know Tom Vu, believe me. Uh, <laughs> Ed, Ed, before, before you get started, yeah. you were a former baseball player and you've uh, made, you've done really well in finance. Do you ever reach out to Lenny Dykstra? I mean, is that? <laughs> uh, ironically, uh, I'm not going to say who, but Lenny, Lenny and I have a couple really, really um, close mutual friends and Lenny and I have talked a few times over the years. I have talked to Lenny. Way How's back. He, how is he now? How I, don't is he I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. Okay. Um, I'm trying to recall. I, I think Lenny had a stroke. I'm pretty yeah. sure Lenny had a stroke. Yeah. And I, think that, I shouldn't say because I don't know, but I, I think, think I heard it. No, Holmberg does it all the time. doesn't matter. Just yeah. say it. 
Yeah, no, I, I think yeah, I, I think it's been tough since then, but but uh, okay. yeah, we have some really really good mutual friends. Um, I forget what you asked. But who are some of those people that uh, along the way, like uh, that you you look at and go, oh my god, like you just had a Rod on, yeah, on your podcast. Yeah, Alex is on um, uh, this week, and and that's a that's a whole. Other, I love Alex, and that's a whole other guy's remade his complete image, and and uh, is a great dude and a good friend of mine. Um, well, I, I have a friend that you don't know that owns a transmission shop. It's one of my best friends. You've never heard of him before. He's been a really good mentor to me because I'm going to give you two names. One you never heard of and one you have. His name's Scotty. We call him Scotty D. Um, the reason is, is that he uh, has learned how to have like great business life. He's like one of those millionaire next doors. He's not a bazillionaire, but he saved a couple bucks. But he's got like an amazing family. And I've always thought like he's probably my richest friend. You know, he's close with all his kids. He's close with his wife. Uh, he's got grandkids. And I consider him one of my richest friends, if not my richest. He's got an awesome life. He doesn't live, doesn't have a jet, doesn't have a mansion. But he lived, he's lived a really rich life, man. Like, there's a lot of his life that I admire. I'd sell you know, my kids yeah. for a plane, just so you know. Exactly. <laughs> we talked about it. And who's the other one? Who's the other one? Um, Stallone, Sly. I met Sly when I was young. And... I had this really surreal moment, actually, where I live here, not this house, but this particular place. Many, many years ago, there's a little gym here, and I walked in one morning early, and there was this dude working out in there. He was probably, at the time, 60, shredded, bananas shredded, shirt off, training really hard, and I turned around, he goes, hey, you want to do legs? I'm like, holy shit, that's Sylvester Stallone. And then Amelia goes, what are you, what are you taking? What are you doing? You on growth hormone? You on GH? You're I'm like, no, man. I'm like, and then we won't go into what we talked about after that. But uh, <laughs> I'm in the we know. where I'm training with him. I'm like, I'm doing the Rocky workout with Rocky Balboa. This Does is, the music play? Does no, it just start it was, happening? It's pretty awesome, man. And he's been a model for me because, dude, he just made Rambo. Right? He's still going. People forget Sly is 73. 74 years old, looks great, has great relationship with his daughters, great relationship with Jen. He's a successful businessman. You know, like he's, he's really embodied, sounds corny, but he's maxed out so many things in his life that, um, and he's a regular person. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. Um, and so he's been a guy I've looked at, like, I wouldn't mind being like him. I'd like to be a better golfer. He's not a good golfer, but I'd like to be a better golfer than him. But there's a lot of his life. And, and, uh, you know, I've been, I, I'm fortunate to have had that association too. I would say him. I think Probably I know. enough, you named Scott's second film, which is, Hey, want to do legs? <laughs> <laughs> I like that one better. Oh, thank you. I think I know where your um, insecurities are. You're always worried about something being corny, sounding corny. Yeah. Well, around you, because you're skeptical. We've started out this well, show. I'm not, ske- I'm not. John is. We, I, I can we just started the show out with 16 skepticals. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I, I just think, I, I think there's a, I think there's, I guess I, uh, I guess I say that because, I don't know. I'm just around people who are cynics all the time, including yeah. me. So I, I think I assume that some of the audience is that. And I can tell you too, from, from the perspective of someone in radio that uh, has a reputation to overcome all the time because people in radio are so awful, your industry is doing no favors to the word, uh, you know, for, for skeptics not to doubt. 
Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, I, I'm not defending the industry because I'm one of the guys that's one of the bigger critics of it. But there are also, like in everything, really good people too. Sure. The with social media is everyone's an expert now. Like if you, in my space, if you could put a Lamborghini in your video, you're really rich and I should listen to everything you say. Like you talk about Tom Vu, <laughs> Tom Vu would blow up on social. Can you imagine those old boat videos on social, what he'd be selling? So, and funny thing about it is I've never had any management. I used to kind of have my jet and stuff in my videos because everyone's like, you should have that so people know you're legit. And then as I meet people like Frank and other people, they're like, hey, dude, like that dude doesn't meet the dude I know. Why don't you just like be the you? I think I yeah. did. I did say something to you. I go, do you have the, you have that logo on your jet? You're like, I, I actually don't like, there was a picture of you with a logo on jet and you're like, no, I, I don't. I, I'm like, why do you, why do you have that then? And, and you just kind of looked at me and now you're saying, well, I got rid of that because shouldn't I always have that. I did. Know, that- like, there was just, there was a cheese factor even for what I was doing for a while, just because I thought you had to do that to be relevant. And then I'm like, I'm a grown ass man. And I know, like, I know that how, it's, I'm not, I would, it's horrible. I don't like when a rich dude goes, Hey man, there's nothing good about being rich. Just be happy. I'm always like, yeah, dude, easy for you to say, have another lobster and a steak. Right. So <laughs> I don't like when guys say that. So I think, I think nice stuff does make you happy, but it doesn't make you fulfilled. And the happiness is temporary. It's like any great car you've had. You're like, this is awesome. Right. If you ever had a good car and then like three weeks later, you're like, yeah, all right, here we go. I'm going for a ride. But so, no, one ever, no one ever strives to achieve less. So I always argue that people are like, well, you've got all, nobody ever gets stuff and goes, I wish I had less stuff. That's I don't true. care who you are. It just that's isn't true. the case. Yeah, that's true. Hey, Ed, have you had other comedians on besides Frank? Yeah. Like, name me one of the other comedians you had on. I'm just the curious. Maniscalco. Okay. Oh, There's a great example of another guy who lives more like you than the average comedian because his body is tight. His clothes are <laughs> impeccable. He is, he is so positive in belief in himself. And that is why he doesn't hang out with hardly any other comedians because most comedians are what Frank was explaining. We are tearing each other down. We are uh, like, you were like, I'm going to watch other comedians and I'd love to learn lessons from other comedians. You have a friend, Frank, called Brad Trackman, right? Brad, a yeah. comedian. Oh, I know him, yeah. Brad, you know, is taking things. Uh, the, the virus happened. The gig <laughs> shut down. He's out online pushing to teach people how to do stand-up comedy. Almost every comedian's like, you can't teach stand-up comedy. I mean, even though he is a successful person at comedy, and I'm sure because other comedians believe like there's some kind of magic egg that either you can do it or you can't it doesn't mean you can't learn you can learn from frank you can learn from a lot of different people but in our industry it's this weird thing where positive thinking is not really seen as a good thing it's more of a and i think david tells probably about the funniest person that ever walked the earth but there's no more negative thinker than david tell so that's the, that's the kind of attitude that most comedians have. So you've talked to Sebastian, who's the opposite. of almost But see, I don't, think, I don't think you don't know, and this is not from Ed, but I, people I've talked to, that's not who Sebastian really is. You, if you oh, really? get around Sebastian Maniscalco, he's a guy who really questions everything 
yeah. he's got that. What uh, John? We we interviewed him years ago yeah, on the podcast. I golfed with him, and it was like just we just shit down each other's throat the whole day because of how well dressed he was and how I thought I looked nice, and he attacked me. Like it was. Oh no no no! He will attack manic- you. Yeah. Oh, no, but I think I think not only that. I think he questions himself all right. the time. Well, that's, that's why that's I kept telling him, "I'm like, this is your insecurity talking, Sebastian. You're worried I look better than you." And then and we just went back. And forth. He was a blast. <laughs> it was very. I, I I agree with Scott at the assessment until I hung out with him, and I'm like, "Wow, okay. you're, we were got- on the golf course." Yeah. The What's golf. Wrong? What's wrong with people? I love people. his. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, talked to, I talked to Sebastian yesterday, and I would say that uh, he, first off, he's gained 10 pounds during COVID. So uh, put some Welcome weight on. That's the I've heard since this thing happened. I'm really yeah. <laughs> put on put on some weight, and he's a wonderful dude, and he does question things. And, um, you know, uh, I love his uh, you bother me stuff. Everything comes from that place. You know, he's – for me, I don't know if there's anyone funnier. And believe me – I think Sebastian would say that, hey, but this is, he's concerned about stuff going on right now as well, right? He's, he's still a touring, uh, you know, sensation, but he's a touring, you know, comic still. And he's, he's – uh, I love him. I think he's just an absolutely wonderful dude. And, and you see my interview with him. We, we talk most of the interview, ironically, about his fears. I asked him in the interview, I said, hey, man, are you afraid this is going to go away? He goes, wow. absolutely. You know, and he wrote a book called Stay Hungry, which is my version of – don't give up your will to win, right? Like very similar stuff. And the reason comedians are so dark and the reason it's funny, comedy does come from a dark place for the most part. And the reason it's funny is we kind of intuitively know we shouldn't think this way, yet most of us do. So that's what's funny about it, right? So almost all comedy comes from that place, which is why I love it. Like I'm, Frank knows this, like I'm a huge comedy fan because I think it flies in the face of most of the stuff that you should be thinking and teaching, yet it's real, right? Most people think these things. Most people have these thoughts. So, now nah, Sebastian's a wonderful dude. He's awesome. Where do you, uh, you know, to, to, before we wrap it up here, where, what's, what do you have left to do? What do you want to do? I mean, you're helping people. You, uh, you, it, where does that even come from, the helping people? Do you, did you feel, hey, I did so well in life, I think I just need to give back at this point. Is it almost a guilt kind of thing? Or is it, cause for me, I've gotten to those moments where I'm like, Hey, you know, I want to help people because I've done really well. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting a certain, certain age. I'd like to do this. And then that quickly goes away. <laughs> uh, for me, it's a pay it forward. Like I'm where I am because other people help me. Right. Like, you know, man, look, dude, I'm a completely average, ordinary person. My IQ is not, I'm not saying I'm dumb. I'm not dumb, but I have an average IQ. I got a 780 on the SATs. I'm not an unusually bright dude. I'm not 6'4". You know, I'm a dude. So a lot of people help me get where I am. I've learned a lot from other people. I kind of spent the first half of my life learning and having a pretty good life. Second half, I enjoy. I enjoy this. Like, like when you're in the middle of a good set, I guarantee you, any of you guys, you're like, I kind of belong here. This is like a little bit of a home for me. Like, I do it for free. And like, when I got into it, I'm like, I do it for free. And I've kind of proven it. I pretty much do it for free. So I feel like it's my home. Like I'm now I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty good at it. Like, this is something I'm actually good at. I enjoy doing it. This isn't work for me, what we're doing right now. Like, this is fun. And then in terms of what I want to do, I've thought a lot about that. And for me, it's, I'm going to create a program where I can get way more young people involved. I grab adults after they're pretty screwed up and try to help them. 
What if we could start reaching kids in their early teens and teach them these life skills and correct thinking and, you know, uh, these strategies younger in life so that we don't have to fix them when they're 30 or 40 or 50. And so I want to try to get to a a much younger audience, which is going to be hard as a 50 year old, but my team knows that's my ambition. I want to get to these kids and get them thinking these thoughts. Like I think my kids have been sort of fortunate. Maybe they don't think so, but they've been around last night. My son's like, Hey dad, you know, he's going to play uh, college golf out in Arizona at Arizona Christian. And he's like, dad, they got three number ones coming in. And you know, like I, I'm competing for one spot to make the team. And I'm like, if you spend your time worrying about these other dudes, that's energy you're taking away from yourself. And I go, here's an article 2001. It's called the dominator tiger woods, the cover of newsweek. He's like, you're giving me an article from 19 years ago. And I'm like, dude, it's the dominator Bible. Go read it. Like that's kind of cool stuff that my teenager gets from his old man. I'm like, well, what if I could do that for everybody's teenager? I'm not gonna make any money on it, but I'd feel like I'm helping people. So that's probably where I'm going. What do you think's more important to teach your kids? Self-esteem or core strength? (laughs) (laughs) I had back surgery and I wish someone would have taught me core strength as a kid. Well, in my kid's case, core strength. (laughs) (laughs) Easy. All right. Uh, Ed, we're going to bring in um, we're going to bring in Sean Salehi, who's kind of like our intern. He many times he's a student at the Cronkite School for Broadcasting at ASU. Um, he most of the time uh, comes up with references that or uh, bring if we have references during the show that are too old uh, for him to understand, he will call us out on that. I don't think you had any today, um, but he did as a journalism student want to ask you a question. Give it to me, brother. Yeah, so it, you mentioned the Tony Robbins story, how he found a gift in you. I wanted to ask, is there been a moment to where you've kind of talked to somebody there where you found a gift in them? Or what's the most inspirational person that you've met kind of through this journey that you've been able to share? Sean, this is such a setup to say my name, Ed. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't know this. <laughs> uh, by the way, you have wings coming out of the top of your head, brother. Yeah, I know. I got it. I need a haircut. So that too. Um, so, uh, well, like you had an hour to get set up for the camera shot. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Like, um, so, hey, Ed, good job with the self-esteem for the young guys. I know, for the young guys. So, so uh, I'm going to tell you, brother, I'm only like good at about five different things. One of them, though, is that I'm addicted to finding somebody's gift. So like I'm always looking for it when I meet people. And then I tell them, like, if you get good at that, like for you, you'll be one of the most influential people you'd ever meet in your life. Because very rarely does someone see someone's true giftedness and then tell them. In fact, in your own life, there's probably been one or two people ever, a dad, a mom, a coach, a grandparent who saw the giftedness in you made you feel a particular way about yourself, right? And you'll never forget them. So if you become that person, you become very, very influential. In terms of the most motivate, so I am good at that. Like I'm not good at a lot, that I'm good at. Uh, In terms of uh, the most inspirational person, I've had a ton of really amazing people on my show, but it's probably the least known person. So I had this woman on my show right after Dirks Bentley. So Dirks is this really famous country dude. And the next week, I had this woman on named Kayla Stockline. I think I'm going to say Kayla, even though I've had unbelievable people. Kayla was a, was a mother, and her husband was a pastor. They had three little boys. All these boys looked just like their daddy, six, four, and two years old. 
beautiful family. He was a pastor of a big church. And I knew his dad. Ironically, I knew his dad. His dad ended up dying of cancer, was this very well-known pastor. The son took it over. I didn't know him. Anyway, without getting too gruesome, um, the dad went to their kid's football game on a weekend and uh, kissed his kids, saw him, and went into, uh, went into the church and died by suicide. Ugh. And she was left with these three little boys and a church. And um, she's, she, she saved literally, bro, like thousands of lives from being on my show. So we put out the story about suicide and what she went through. And for someone who's contemplating it to see the after effects with a mother and her three children and to hear how the four-year-old still writes dad a Father's Day card and can't quite figure out when he's going to see dad to give him it again and what that looked like. She literally saved thousands of lives from my show. We got thousands of DMs and emails and people shared it. It's the most downloaded show. It's not A-Rod or J-Lo or the most downloaded show is this woman who I think at the time had 1,800 Instagram followers or something, right? And so just her courage to tell the story and what she's done with her family and, and uh, the difference she's made for other people, I'd probably put her, I could name 20 people, but I'd probably rank her number one. Because so here's the thing, man, like in life, the most inspirational people aren't the most successful. They're the people who've had to overcome the most. And so if you want to become a really inspirational person, if you're listening to this, it's not what you achieve, it's what you overcome. So if you're in this situation where you're really going through something right now, again, sayings are cheesy, but your test ends up being your testimony. The greatest test of her life is now her testimony, right? And so probably that woman, average, ordinary mom who no one had ever heard of before. And that, that's, that's a powerful woman right there, man. That's a strong woman. That's someone to admire and she's doing an amazing job with her voice. So, so probably her best question of the interview too. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you're going to pin it on. I don't bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Self-esteem for the young people, John. (laughs) All right. Well, fuck. I I tear them down and then I build them up. (laughs) Anybody got anything else? I think it was great. So Oh, thanks, Ed. That was awesome. And uh, your podcast, the biggest podcast in the universe, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The multiverse. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, people can find you at Ed Milet, especially on Instagram. Uh, when I went on Ed's uh, podcast, I gained, what, 40,000 followers in two days or something like that. It was crazy. Cool. Um, yeah, the, it was the most um, amazing. The, the, his audience is so... You know, you're a true. Um, what's the what's the 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 word with uh, uh, Bernie Sanders? No, uh, it's Sanders, yes. no, no, no. What's the? I'm a democratic <laughs> socialist. No, <laughs> that's on but Forbes' know, list of fifty richest under fifty. Socialist of all time, by the way. Like that would be the most awesome combo. Me is a democratic socialist. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would like to say I'll let it's, my it's not that far off from some of them. It's not that. Oh, 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 oh did you have something to say? I was going to say, uh, Frankie, we'll let him be the running mate for uh, later this year uh, because I'm coming back into the race and then he's going to fight uh, Joe Biden physically for me and just knock him cold. And then we'll move forward from there, uh, making sure everything's free. Uh, that's, that's the thing. Ed Milet has been training with Rocky, the real one. That's right. He's been running the stairs in Philadelphia. He's ready to go. Nobody can stop him now. Uh, both of them, uh, he'll carry me up the stairs 
just the way Rocky carried his uh, terrible career there towards the end there, and he still fought Mason Dixon. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> so the word I was looking for is influencer. Um, and the reason we went to Bernie Sanders, because I really couldn't think of Bernie Sanders' name uh, the last podcast. But uh, in, in terms of uh, influencers, he, he's really one of those people. Like he says something and people react. It's amazing. I'd never seen that. Uh, Pat McAfee's another one that, uh, you know, they say something to their audience and all of a sudden, holy cow, people react. There are a lot of people who say they're influencers. They might have a lot of followers or something like that, but there's no reaction. Ed's one of those people, says something and people move. And I think that's what you were talking about before, John, with you got to be careful with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think people like uh, Pat and, and Ed realize that and are careful with it. So, Thanks, man. Appreciate that. It's great to be on today. It's the longest podcast I've yeah. ever seen in my life. Well, well, here, we're cutting it down to about 12 minutes. So. Oh, okay. Like the highlights. Yeah. We're yeah. cutting out Salehi's question. Fuck you, Winhead. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I mean, what's going on with Eddie Munster and the top-notch question, Chachi? <laughs> at least uh, Miller also thought there was a porn connection. I'm, I'm excited to hear that, at least. I'll have to go back and listen to that. All right. Well, thank, thank you. Man. We appreciate your Thanks, awesome. Thanks, Good to meet all of you, Frank. Good to see you, brother. You too. Thanks, man. <laughs>